So we're continuing with this theme of right or wise speech that we already had a couple of sessions on. And I wanted to take a bit more time with this factor because, as, as John said a few weeks ago, this is perhaps the one area of our lives that most of us are engaged in for most of the day. So if we can bring mindfulness to speaking and to listening, then we increase our practice opportunities exponentially. And yet also, as I think we know, this is the one area that for most of us is probably the most challenging to really stay present, alert, centered, grounded, (coughs) mindful as we speak and as we listen. So I wanted to take some more time with it this evening because usually, again perhaps due to time constraints, this factor is usually presented in a pretty almost generic kind of way. But as I've come to appreciate through studying this path in a little bit more depth, the Buddha's understanding of what constitutes wise speech is actually pretty nuanced. (coughs) Perhaps even, in some areas, somewhat controversial. But to begin with, just for context, the standard definitions of what constitutes wise speech We've talked about them a couple of times already. So just to hear from any of you, what's your understanding of what is wise speech if somebody asked you? What's your understanding? Speaking the truth. Speaking the truth. Speaking in a way that's not going to hurt. Speaking in a way that's not going to hurt. And you said kindness. Not speaking against myself or others. Not speaking against yourself or others. Yep. Not gossiping. Not gossiping. Yep. Maybe space, like pausing before. Pausing before speaking. Yeah. So. (laughs) Pausing before speaking or not speaking. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So bringing in the mindfulness aspect. Yeah. Great. So those, in some ways, are aspects of the. The Vacha Sutta that we have heard a few times now. So, the five factors of something that's well spoken are that it's spoken at the right time, spoken in truth, spoken politely, spoken beneficially, spoken with a mind of goodwill. And I'm guessing we can all say, well, yep, that's a great idea. But, and, at least for me, I would sometimes think, and how on earth am I supposed to do that in this situation, or with that person, or when I'm in, this is going on at work, and so on. So we can wonder, well, how do these apply to some of the more complex situations that we often find ourselves in, in our families, in our workplaces, in wider society? And actually there's a danger in trying to apply these guidelines too rigidly to the inevitable conflicts and the relational challenges that we do find ourselves in. And that danger can be if we try to not speak at all out of some misguided understanding that it's going to be wrong speech we can end up actually condoning or prolonging situations that are harmful 
harmful to ourselves or to other people. And this is, uh, I had an experience of this a few years ago now when I was spending time in a Dharma community somewhere else. And I was only there for three months. But in a relatively short period of time, that community developed some pretty dysfunctional patterns of harm. And I was new to it, but I could sense that something was going on. And eventually, after maybe a couple of months, the situation exploded in a way that meant it actually had to be dealt with. So then there was a whole process of people being asked to speak more openly about their experience. And what struck me was that almost every person said something like, they'd been feeling like they were being harmed or even bullied for quite a long time, but they felt that it would be wrong speech to say anything about it. And because everyone quietly just kind of thought, it's just me that has the issue or just me that's experiencing this, and they didn't say anything, then that situation continued for longer than maybe it, needed to, I mean, obviously it played out the way it did, so that was the way it had to play out, but if perhaps people had been more willing to take the risk, it might have brought the the harm to light sooner rather than later. <coughs> so, as I've been exploring these Buddhist, Buddhist teachings on wise speech, I've come to appreciate that there's a lot more nuance to his approach than we often we hear. And in fact, it's not only ever about saying nice, kind, gentle things all the time, regardless of the circumstances, which is often how people misunderstand it. And this is because when it comes to ethics, which wise speech is an aspect of, the Buddha didn't give sort of rigid commandments that were followed. So as you know, the five ethical training precepts are trainings, they're guidelines, and they're not black and white rules that we just apply to every situation, to every circumstance that we find ourselves in. So part of the skill of this practice is learning how to apply these principles to the unique situations that each of us face in our own lives. So just one hypothetical example that's often used in relation to wise speech is the example of trying to protect someone who's in danger. So just as a made-up example, perhaps your neighbor comes knocking at your door and she tells you that her ex-partner has suddenly come over, he's in a really bad frame of mind and she's really scared. So you take her to somewhere where she can't be seen easily from the street, you go and call the police, and then this guy shows up at the front door wanting to know where she is. What's wise speech in that situation? Telling porkies. Telling porkies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, the first principle of wise speech is tell the truth, but in this case, the underlying principle of non-harming takes precedence over that. And, you know, that's a relatively simplistic example. But the same principle applies that we can't just blanketly do, yes, that's right, that's wrong. We have to attune 
to the overall situation to see what's actually wise. So in that case, the lie would be motivated by the intention to avoid harm. So as I was researching all this, I found an interesting article in the Journal of Buddhist Ethics by a professor called Sally King. She's a professor of philosophy and religion, and I think also a Quaker, or has uh, an interest in Quaker um, practice. And this, the article is called Right Speech is Not Always Gentle, the Buddha's Authorization of Sharp Criticism. So in this paper, she just highlights the flexibility of the Buddha's ethical teachings. And she says, they don't rely upon moral rules, but upon moral principles. So in the teachings of the Buddha, the ethical principle that transcends all the others is simple, straightforward, and intuitive. Avoid causing suffering. Prevent suffering. Ameliorate suffering. And if a principle such as telling the truth comes in conflict with the principle of preventing harm, then the latter prevails. And if the principle of gentle speech comes in conflict with preventing harm, again, the latter prevails. So suddenly, wise speech gets quite a bit more complex. And it recognizes that at times, gentle speech may not actually be appropriate. And that in some circumstances, we even have an ethical duty to speak out, to call attention to harm that's being done to ourselves or to others. And sometimes we need to do that in ways that are direct and perhaps not going to be well received by the other person. So the Buddha is reported to have said, the one that I consider the most excellent is the one who speaks dispraise of someone who deserves dispraise and that dispraise is accurate, truthful and timely and who also speaks praise of someone who deserves praise and that praise is accurate, truthful and timely. So we don't often hear dispraise as being an aspect of wise speech provided still that it's timely and true and accurate. And the Buddha himself, there are quite a few examples of where he was quite strongly critical of his peers, his contemporaries, who he felt were spreading teachings that were harmful, that were misguided. So just one example. I do not see even a single person who is acting so much for the harm of many people, the unhappiness of many people, the ruin, the harm and the suffering of many people, as the hollow man, Makali. So Makali was apparently teaching um, a form of nihilism, that actions don't have consequences, that you don't have much control, so you may as well just do whatever you like. And so this was the Buddha um, really pretty critically saying he's not somebody to be listened to, to be heard. So the Buddha endorsed sharp speech when it was beneficial and timely. And he even said that monks had a moral duty to speak what was true, even if it disturbed their equanimity. So 
you know, Ooh. there's this image that monks are somehow aloof and they don't get involved and it's not their place to um, speak out. But it's very clear in some of these passages that there's a moral duty to name harm when harm is being caused. And she says, good moral judgment is needed to determine when sharp speech should be used. So not just for monks, but for any of us. What is our ethical duty or our obligation to speak out in the face of harm? Whether that harm is individual or collective or society-wide, with that underlying commitment to ethics, we are being invited to engage with that. And this is different sometimes. You know, there can be this belief, as I said, that we're supposed to just be equanimous and allow everything to, oh yeah, don't react, don't react, don't react. But this can be a form of spiritual bypassing. If we really take in this uh, understanding of wise speech, it's not just about being equanimous. But on the other hand, it's also not giving us license to go around criticizing everything and everyone we don't like. So as always, there's a middle way here. And as Sally King says, good moral judgment is needed. So good moral judgment, how do we find that? One way, I think, is what I was pointing to in the guided meditation earlier, is this practice of listening. Really listening on a deeper level to ourselves, to what's going on in our own hearts and minds, our own bodies, so we can get clearer about our own motivations before we speak. But also listening out there, listening really fully to other people, and not through the lens of our perceptions and views and concepts and stereotypes and all the other sort of junk that tends to filter how we relate to each other and to ourselves. So this quality of wise listening is really a crucial skill that we need on this path. And fortunately we can train in it. So that's partly why I was emphasizing the listening aspect in the meditation just earlier and obviously we can practice listening as a form of meditation even right now so as you're receiving the words noticing the responses noticing when the attention moves where it goes bringing it back because I think we've all had the experience well let's just check anybody had the experience of being listened to unmindfully and what it's like when you're talking to someone and they're just not really, you know, half there, kind of checking the phone and saying, yes, dear, and <laughs> disrespectful, painful, and so on. And then the converse of that, that many of you have experienced in the group when somebody is just fully present and there with you, and how that very presence, that quality of deep listening, seems to draw forth a, a different kind of understanding or, or wisdom that perhaps you didn't even realize was in you or was in them. So that mutuality and that presence acts as a kind of catalyst or a magnifier 
somehow allows a deeper understanding to emerge. So I'd like us to explore this together soon, but just before we go into that, a little bit more about what supports what I'm calling wise listening or wise attention. As I was just pointing to, part of what supports that is being fully embodied. So I don't know if it's true for you, but often when we're in a more conventional conversation, most of my energy is up in my head, and it feels like I'm just blah, 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 up here. And I'm leaning forward because I've literally lost that groundedness and that centeredness and that presence. And there's this forward momentum, and sometimes I'm just waiting for the other person to stop speaking so I can get my point across. And You know, I sometimes joke that in the early days of when I was practicing Insight Dialogue, which is a relational meditation, there's that saying we have in English about waiting to get your two cents worth in. And I'd be like, I've got ten cents worth to go. <laughs> and then as I got more used to settling back, it was like there was this devaluing of the currency and that urge to get my ten cents worth in. It was like, it's not, it's not ten cents. It's not even one cent. Actually, it's not worth saying at all. So I would watch the urgency just slowly diminish as I was able to get more present and steady. So listening deeply comes from that capacity to be fully embodied with our own hearts and minds, fully received and sensitizing ourselves to the subtle or not so subtle at times responses that we might be having and simply listening to them, knowing them without falling into default reactions so that they don't derail our capacity to just be there with kind curiosity, to stay open, stay receptive. And when we're not agitated by what we're hearing, that very presence really is a gift to that other person. And it helps them to stay present with their own experience. So again, there's that sort of amplifier effect. The more one person can be steady, a sort of Wi-Fi, neuronal Wi-Fi tune in and help the other person. So it's uh, that mutuality helps to refine sati and samadhi, mindfulness and steadiness of mind. So that's what I'd like us to have an opportunity to explore more directly now. So thank you for your attention. Mm-hmm. Thank you.